Hello and welcome to the River's Edge Church Podcast. Today, Pastor Dave Johnson will bring a message from our series on the book of Revelation. We're excited to share another episode with you today. And now, here's Pastor Dave. Good morning. All right, it's good to see you. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 2, so if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and flip there. I did need to tell you, my staff told me I need to tell you this. Uh, I am doing a life group on the book of Revelation, but it's question and response style, and we're recording that for our podcast. So I would really, really appreciate it if you would, if you have questions on the book of Revelation, I would love it if you would email those in to media at recsac.org. They'll compile the questions for me because as you might know, much ink has been spilled over the book of Revelation. And if you know anything about the theological sources and material, they are numerous. And so I would love to give you like the best possible biblical, scholarly, all those answers that make sense. And um, so it really helps if you're prepared for that. Otherwise, it could go on all night long, this life group, because if I'm not prepared, then I'll just keep going and going and going and going and be like, you're going to be like, why are we in Exodus 17 for so long? And there's reasons, right? So anyways, it would help if you did that. If you'd like to come to that group, um, the first one is the 19th. And uh, we'll be, I think, in here, in this room, and we're just going to answer questions that you might have. We're doing this once a month through um, probably until Jesus comes back or and, and until the series ends, whatever sooner. <laughs> um, it's going to be a long series. Uh, let's get into it this morning. Oftentimes, on my Facebook, when I like, you watch videos, does anybody like just watch videos on Facebook? We all do this, right? Um, this even happened to me this morning. Like I, I'm like flipping through videos or whatever, and you see this heading, and it's like, Christian thinker owns atheists. And you watch the video, and you're like, oh, man. Like, this guy totally got that guy. Like, that was so good. And, and you're watching these videos going like, such a good argument. And maybe it's just me, right? Like, you guys are like, no, I'm watching funny cat videos, right? <laughs> like, yes. Um, I'm watching this video about how this guy's uh, camel got stuck in his house. I did see that video. I mean, it was, it was amazing. To me, you were like watching random videos, but I'm like watching these videos as like Christian thinker owns atheist. And as I'm watching these videos, um, I'm watching them thinking, like, there's such a good allure to truth. When we see this truth, we know it, and we just kind of go, ah, yes. These people are speaking truth, and it's so good. It's so amazing. But the challenge comes when we realize that sometimes truth is opposed to, to, um, well, truth becomes a battle, almost like a war, right? And the other side, those who don't believe in biblical truth, the other side becomes our enemies and people we're fighting against. And so sometimes the danger of these videos, I think there's the people online, they, they do a really good job at still loving people. The danger, though, is that we begin to love our arguments more than we love people. That's the danger. The danger of living in a world of such falsehood, which, by the way, our, our world just loves a lie. It's in love with a lie. And, and our, the danger of living in such a world where we have biblical truth and where we claim that Jesus is the ultimate like living, breathing uh, truth, the, the danger of that is we begin to love that and we begin to dive into our arguments so deeply that we look at the maybe other side as ones who we're fighting against. And that's just not 
the reality. So I want you to take that thought and file it into the back of your brain because we're going to come right back to it in a couple minutes. Does that sound okay? You guys with me? You know, take the thought, owning, you know, taking your truth, all that, and just file it away. Because as we get into chapter two, I would like to read the scripture and then talk about that again in a couple of minutes. Last week, we began our series on the book of Revelation, and we saw Jesus, this vision of Jesus. We call it the cosmic Jesus, this vision of Jesus towering over all of life, and he walks in and among his church, that Jesus is present with his church. That's the vision of Revelation chapter 1, and he's holding seven stars in his hand. If you notice on our Revelation logo, there's seven stars. That's not on accident. And the idea of the seven stars is that he holds the entire universe in his hand, because that was the idea of the known universe at the time, that he holds all power, that he's in charge of life, that he's our overseer, That's who Jesus is. And at the end of chapter one, we get this picture of Jesus in and among his church because he loves his church. And we see that there's a letter that's forming. And John, the apostle who's writing it down, says, make sure you read this entire thing to the churches. So read it. Make sure they hear. And so what we're going into after chapter one is this section. It's only two chapters long, but it's a section of letter to each individual church in Asia Minor in, in that area there. Now, are there more churches in this? So like when he says to the church in Ephesus, is there just one or are there many? Well, there's many in Ephesus, right? There's many gatherings and there's many what they would call fellowships in, in Ephesus, but God only sees it as one church, right? And so this is what Jesus is doing. He's saying to the church in Ephesus, write this, and and I want to speak to this church. And so this is what he does. And he says he want to speak, so he's speaking to the complete church. There's seven churches. Now, were there seven churches in antiquity? Of course. But remember, numbers in the book of Revelation are symbols and not statistics. And so this is also to the whole church, which means it's to you and me today too, right? This letter is for us. We're not in Ephesus. We're not Ephesians. But this letter is to us as well. So if you would look with me, and we'll be Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I just would like to read that entire text this morning. It's only seven verses. We could do it, guys. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bringing and bearing up for my name's sake, but you have not not grown weary, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you've had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. All right. In a lot of ways... This is really nice to read because we generally get that, right? 
We, you know, chapter one, it's like all of a sudden you see this vision of Jesus and he's got like gold on him and bronze on him and all this stuff and his eyes are fire. And he's like, what does this all mean? But, but this is like very little in the way of symbols, right? This is just right speaking about this church in Ephesus. And it's like, you've got good doctrine, but you've forgotten your first love. This is the, the, the compliment and the critique that he has of this church. And as we go through these seven churches, you're going to see this over and over and over again, that oftentimes Jesus has a compliment for the churches, and oftentimes he has a critique for the churches. It's important that we listen to these. It's important that we hear these. And immediately, what I want to do is help us to understand really verse 1 here. Because I'm only going to do this today, and then we're going to go through the rest of the seven churches, and I'm not even going to acknowledge it because there's too much to cover. So today, here's what I want to do. It says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Hold on a second. Who's John writing to? Who's Jesus referring to? To the angel of the church of Ephesus. The word angel is used in the book of Revelation about 80 times. And only eight of those times is it contentious. And eight of those times are the times that he uses it to the seven churches. The rest of the 72 times, it is written to, is written understanding like this supernatural messenger from heaven to God's people. And so we've got no reason to think, there's, there's really three options, but we've got no reason to think that, that this isn't anything other than a messenger to God. But is it a little bit crazy to think that John's not going to like hand this letter off to like some supernatural being, right? Like that's not what's happening here. He says, read this to the churches, assuming that there's like a witness in heaven that hears it. Does that make sense to you? So he reads, nope, You're like I lost you all. That's why I'm only covering this once because it gets tricky, okay? Because there's a lot of Old Testament reference just in this one verse. So, John is saying, read this to the churches, but he addresses it to an angel. All the way through the book of Revelation, you're going to see this. It has a physical earthly reality and a heavenly reality as well. That's the idea. Because Jesus walks among the lampstands. He is among his church. There is a supernatural reality to what we're doing here. That's the idea of the book of Revelation. And so he's wanting to write this to his church. All right, so we're going to go to Zechariah chapter 4, and we're only going to look at a couple verses. And just so you know, and you're welcome in advance, I cut out like 10 verses of, of Zechariah because I was really, really, really wanted to like do a rabbit trail for 30 minutes into Zechariah chapter 4. I will say this, as you read the book of Revelation, Zechariah 4 is one of those key verses to keep coming back to. And so if you go home and read that a few different times and you kind of have it in your head, it's one of those verses that John throws in the blender all the time. And as he comes up with the book of Revelation, he's alluding to it over and over and over again. So I'm going to look at just three verses instead of the 10 I really wanted to um, and, and give you this. So Zechariah 4, 1 through 2, the question is, who is the angel, Right? And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me, like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? And I said, behold, a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps are on top of it. 
So this goes back to chapter 1 and chapter 2, that the whole idea is that the lampstand is the church, right? And Zechariah is getting a vision, uh, and what is it? Oh, it's of a lampstand, and an angel, by the way. Angel, lampstand, right? Two of the same things we find in Revelation chapter 2. Again, there's a reason why I'm only covering this once, because it gets technical. Revelation 4.10, for whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Now, Zerubbabel was going to go build the temple again. The plumb line is this idea of like making all things straight and true. That's, it was like an ancient, people still use it today in building, but you know, if you hold it, it's like the ancient level. Anyways, um, and it says this, the seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. So he sees this lampstands with seven things, and he calls it the eyes of the Lord. And you see this, by the way, in other chapters of the Old Testament, which I'm not necessarily going to cover here, but the eyes of the Lord range through the whole earth. And you see that over and over and over again in the Old Testament. And the idea is that the church is the faithful witness of Jesus. We are witnessing what he's done in our life. We're telling people what he has done in our lives, and we're also witnessing what's happening in the world. We're also seeing what's happening in the world. And so the idea in all the way back in Zechariah is that there's this idea that both the angel and the lampstands are the eyes of the Lord, right? Are you you with me here? (laughs) Some of you, nope, that's okay. I'll cover it more in the Q and and R, but the reason why I want to, to talk about this, and let me read Revelation 2.1 again, just so that you can see the connection. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who hold the seven stars in his right hand who walk among the seven golden lampstands. There's a similarity here between Zechariah 4 and Revelation chapter 2. The angel and the lampstands are tied together. It's, the idea is this. It's not just like God sees the church as having heavenly accountability, right? That there's a reality here on earth and in heaven. And so it's not just the church that's accountable before God. It's this angelic oversight. And remember, the reason why I did a whole sermon right before the book of Revelation on the supernatural worldview of the Bible is this would not have been weird to people in the first century at all. It's weird to us. We are the weird ones. But to the first century people, they would have been like, oh yeah, God's got his people watching over us. Absolutely. And so what God is saying to this church is, look, and and I want you to think of like when it says to the angel, another way to look at that is um, semantically, the words could be translated uh, a few different ways. Not the word angel, but to. It could almost be like a, a carbon copy on your email. It's like just wanting to give you notice, church, and and by the way, your heavenly oversight. I want to just give you, put you on notice of what I see. And you, you better work to, to fix these wrongs. You better work to, to, to go through and, and really listen to what God has to say, because I want your allegiance, church. This is what God is telling his church. He says, otherwise, I'm going to remove your lampstand. And so he's kind of putting the church on notice. Like, I, I walk among you. I see you. I'm here. And and, and the angels who are part of heaven with me, they see you too. They're a part of it too. But I'm going to put you on notice that if you don't, if you're not faithful witnesses, if you're not being the eyes of the Lord throughout the whole earth like I've called you to be, then I'm going to pull your lampstand 
Okay. I know that that's complex and complicated, but revelation is complex and complicated. So you just have to stick with me through that. That is what scholars believe is probably the most faithful way to look at the word angel. I've probably left you with multiple questions, and I understand that. Come to the Q&R. I didn't try and confuse you for a purpose, but I did want you to hear that explanation. Um, Again, that'll be the last time. (laughs) But I do want to talk about Ephesus for a second. Now, if you read the Gospels, Jesus is coming to an agrarian community. Here's what I mean by that. They're fishermen. They're fisher, uh, fishermen. They're, um, what do you call them? Farmers. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Lost it for a second. It's discipleship in a rural community. And so now all of a sudden in the book of Revelation, if Jesus is showing us how to be disciples in the midst of this rural community, now we have these disciples in this church that's radically changed. This is 60 years after the church has moved out of Jerusalem and is now in the big city. It's in Ephesus. This is a massive city. Jerusalem had been destroyed, and the church now is scattered all over the Roman world. It's into India. It's uh, even into parts of modern-day Ukraine. The church is now scattered throughout the earth. Um, The city of Ephesus is the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire, It had about a quarter of a million people probably living there at the time. It's the center of Roman religious life. In fact, there was an Olympics held shortly before the book of Revelation was written, and Ephesus was named the center of the Roman empirical cult, that is, the worship of Caesar. So now... It moves out of this society, of this agrarian society of fishing and gath hunting and doing all these, now into the big city life. How do we be disciples in a way that we're like now living in the big city life? That's what's happening in the book of Ephesus, and this is what's happening to the church. So let me tell you the history of the church. It's founded by Paul. It was nurtured by Priscilla and Aquila. It is pastored by Timothy, and church tradition tells us that Timothy was killed by the Romans. John took it over. That's right. The author has to say the negative things about his own church that he's pastoring. That's got to be hard, right? So John takes over the church in Ephesus, and church tradition tells us that uh, probably the most famous member of the church was Mary the mother of Jesus. And a lot of people don't realize that, but yeah, she lived on after Jesus died and rose again. She lived on and probably went to Ephesus because Jesus on the cross said to John, what, you're like, woman, your mother, woman, behold your son, and, or John, behold your mother, uh, you know, all this stuff. And the idea is that John was to take care of her after his death. And so probably Mary is probably dead by this time, but Mary was a member of that church. So there's a ton written about this church, a ton written about Ephesus. And we know this through the book of Acts and uh, a bunch of letters that Timothy has written to uh, Timothy, who's pastoring uh, this church. And then, so the text says, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. See, Jesus here reminds them of his place. He holds all power, all authority, and he walks among the churches. He's present in the life of the church, and Jesus knows what he wants from his church. In fact, this is your first fill-in. 
Jesus is always intimately aware of the status of his church because he's always present with it. Sometimes we come to the gathering, the worship gathering, and we forget that. We forget that Jesus is intimately aware of what is happening here, not only just here, but in your own life. He's intimately aware of our corporate community and our corporate life and the things that we're doing and the way that we operate, the way that we act. Jesus is not unaware of River's Edge Church. He knows this place and he knows all churches. So it's important to ask Jesus questions while reading the Bible. Lord, where do we please you as a church? Where do we need to repent? Jesus is intimately aware. And that's the idea. Sometimes you could get off doing church for a while. You could teach the Bible and all that stuff. But you could forget about the actual presence of Jesus that's found in his church. And this is what Revelation chapter 2 is reminding us, that Jesus sees his church. He knows where we're blind. He knows where we're falling short. He knows the good things that we're doing as well. So let's look at verses 2 through 3 again. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, for you have not grown weary. So Jesus first encourages this church. You're doing a good thing. I know your works. I know the tons of activity that you have, that you want members of God's kingdom to advance. I know your toil and hard work. He's emphasizing this strenuous, exhausting labor. I know it, is what Jesus is saying. There are people who are willing to pay the price of commitment. They understand the phrase, discipleship that costs nothing is worth nothing. They get that. And this church got it that they cared about the truth. He says, I know your perseverance, this inner attitude, Jesus is saying, your long suffering. I know about your faith against such opposition. If you were to read the book of 1 Timothy, one of the things that you'll see is over and over again, like chapter one, he kicks out two men in the church for having bad theology. These false witnesses of the gospel, people who were trying to use Jesus's name for profit and people who were trying to gain power for themselves. That's what's happening in 1 Timothy. And he's like, church, you are doing such a good job of holding on to correct doctrine. Good job. You cannot tolerate wicked men. Jesus was commending them for their good theology and purity in which they've lived their lives. They were not settling or compromising their morals or ethics. Now, this is where I want you to dust off that thought. Everybody go back into the backs of your brain and bring it back out, right? Christian thinker owns atheist. You watch these video headlines and you're like, whoa, that guy was amazing. And the reason why it had an impact on me when I, saw, when I see these videos is because I was that guy. I would get invited, and I used to do this all the time, and I really just don't do this anymore, but I used to get invited to sit on panels that had a Buddhist and atheist, a, you know, you, you name it, um, people who were activists, people, all kinds of stuff, and they're like, we have the Christian pastor over here, and we want to ask you guys the big questions of life, and we want you to express and support. And, and as I was doing this more and more, I began to see other people as my rivals, 
because I was doing this more and more and more. And I, and I was like, oh, I've got to beat, I know what this guy's going to say. I've got to beat him at his own argument. And I got to think about this, you know? And so I'm like writing down arguments. I'm like talking to people, kicking ideas around. And I'm thinking more of winning the argument than I am of winning their life to Jesus. Have you ever found yourself to be that person? There's untruth is so pervasive in our world. Lies are so pervasive in our world that we come up with a good, solid Christian response and we can own the atheist. Yes. But we forget that they're the very people that God has called us to reach. We forget that they're the very people that God wants us to pour our lives out for and introduce them to the ones, to, to Jesus, to the one who saved us from our sin. We forget that our chief job is not to be apologists, although that's a great thing and a great calling, but to be faithful witnesses of what God has done in our lives. That's what our chief calling is. And this is what I think happened in the church in Ephesus. The next villain is this, good doctrine is a good thing, but it's not the only thing. Good doctrine is a good thing, but it's not the only thing. Listen, I'm in charge for about 70 churches in California, Nevada, Arizona of the ordination process. I care about good doctrine. I do. And people who come up uh, for ordination, we quiz them. And if they don't do a good job, we send them back and say, maybe next year. Good doctrine matters. It's important. We want all of our pastors to have it. We want all of our people to have it. We want to make sure that when somebody comes up and takes a pulpit, that good doctrine is something they're going to be teaching. We care about good doctrine. I care about good doctrine very, very deeply. It needs to be well-guarded. It needs to be cared for. You could easily go off into other tangents without a good understanding of the Trinity, without a good understanding of grace, without a good understanding uh, of, you know, things like this, free will and predestination, all these different things. You could easily go off the rails without good doctrine. It matters. It's important. It matters that people give their life to that. But don't give your life to that if it's going to cause you to build enemies that you don't want to win to Jesus. Good doctrine is a tool to help us live in a whimsical way to love other people and to bring them to Jesus. It's why I think the chief complaint means this, Revelation 2, 4, but I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love that you've had at first. Ouch, right? That hurts. Now, it makes no sense that this church stopped loving Jesus. It doesn't. Why would they have such good doctrine? Why would they repeatedly challenge people with bad doctrine? It makes no sense at all to me and to a number of biblical commentators too that this church just stopped loving God, that their love grew cold for God. It doesn't make sense. Now, I think that I've been guilty of mistakenly preaching this text before that it meant that the church stopped loving Jesus. And I don't, I don't think that's true anymore. So I think what happens is that intimacy with Jesus sometimes, and pretty naturally, if you care a lot about truth, gets replaced by doctrine. And the chief thing that we need is our intimacy with Jesus. Doctrine comes second. 
And out of that intimacy with Jesus, we're able to experience the love of God that we've never had like with any other person. And he's able to lavish his love on us so that we could lavish that love onto others. That's what it means to be a faithful witness, to faithfully witness what God has done for us into others. But sometimes we lavishly give our doctrine to other people, right? And not in a kind way. Because maybe losing your first love isn't necessarily not forgetting to love Jesus, but forgetting to love others. And this is what many commentators will say. Now, can your love for Jesus grow cold? Absolutely. Absolutely. If you don't work on keeping that intimacy with him, I'm not saying that's an impossibility. It is absolutely possible that your love for Jesus can grow cold. But I think there's a couple of verses that John is referencing here. First one is Jeremiah 2. And remember, John loves to do this. He loves to take verses. He loves to put them in a blender, shake them all up, and then write something new. But he makes these allusions. So Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth. And this is what Jeremiah says to Israel. I remember the devotion of your youth. Your love is a bride. How you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. And then jump down to verse 5. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? The idea here is that the Israel lost their first love at 1.2. And it wasn't that they didn't honor God because all through the wilderness, they're honoring God, they're doing sacrifices to God and all this stuff, but they're, they're going after doing all these other things, idols and all this other stuff. And at one point, they still like had respect for Yahweh, but they were just kind of going after all this other stuff and they stopped becoming the faithful witnesses that God called them to be. And you hear in this declaration where God says, where did my lover go? Israel, where did they go? Come back to me. I think the best way to understand this is not that the church stopped loving Jesus, but they stopped loving one another. Verse 2 and 3 confirm that they're willing to suffer and defend the truth of Jesus. The church was a fierce defender of Jesus. So when the church says, uh, when it said to the church, you've lost your first love, uh, you know, what, what does he tell the church to do? The next verse in verse 5, Revelation 2, 5 says this, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. I will come to you and remove your lampstand from, uh, um, I'm sorry, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So we're, we're going to look at this next verse and see your next fill-in. Go and do the works you did at first. This is what he tells the church. If your love for me has grown cold, if your love for others has grown cold. Go and do what you did at first. Well, what are the works that Jesus is talking about here? Go do the works you did at first. This is not hard to find out. What did Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, standing with his disciples and saying, okay, this is the only work I have for you. Revelation, I'm sorry, Matthew 28. What does he tell them? Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Go be my faithful witnesses, teaching them good doctrine, by the way, teaching them all the things I taught you, and go baptize them into my name. 
the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is the, the first thing that Jesus tells, commissions the church. This is the work that they did at first. Let me ask you a question, and this is true of me, and I hope it's true of you. When I first came to know Jesus, I told so many people about it. New believers are the best at telling other people about the change that they've had in their life. That's the work that they do at first. But sometimes we get so ramped up in our truth arguments and owning them, you know, winning the argument, blah, 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 that we forget that people are spiritually lost and people need a relationship with their creator. We care more about winning the argument than we do about winning them to Jesus. And I think that's what's happening in this church. I've got no doubt that the church in Ephesus loved Jesus and fiercely defended the truth. Jesus says that, that they fiercely defended the truth. And it's this easy, subtle shift. Like I talked about those times where I jumped on these panels and realized I was just was trying to defeat people rather than to love them well. And I realized afterwards, it would have been better if I lost every argument, but every person there thought that I loved them and invited them to know Jesus. It would have been so much better, such a better witness, that if I had no words to say, but man, I love you and God loves you, and I, and I want you to experience that one day. And so that's kind of why I stopped doing those things, because I realized I need to get better at, at not letting not being the church of Ephesus in my own heart. I had to repent of that. I think that John might be referring back to a conversation that he had with Jesus. It'll be on the screen, but Matthew 24, there's this other conversation that Jesus has with his disciples. Uh, verses four through five. I'm gonna, I'm gonna split these up a little bit. Oh man, so much how I wanted to read you all of these scriptures and take all day long. Matthew 24, four through five. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. So look at Jesus says that. See that no one leads you astray. Good doctrine is important. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. So Jesus challenges his disciples. Have good doctrine. The church of Ephesus would have gotten that. Remain loyal to truth. Don't be led astray. And then a few verses later, here's what he says. Verses 12 through 14, Matthew 24. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world, the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. By the way, some of you are wondering, when is the end of all things? I think Jesus says it right there. We've got to be, uh, we've got to be faith, God's faithful witnesses to the whole world, and then we'll come as soon as the whole world is evangelized. I mean, that's kind of what Jesus says. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know, but he kind of says it right there. That's not my point today, though. <laughs> my point today is that in there, he's like, listen, your, your love is going to grow cold. The love of many will grow cold, but the chief work of the church is to spread the gospel to all nations. That's the chief work of you, the church. Don't forget it. That's your, your, your first love is to love other people and show them. It's to love me, God, and to love others and bring them into the kingdom. Don't forget it. When Jesus was asked, what are the greatest two commandments? He said, love God, love people. Put all that together, that's the first love. Love God, love people. It doesn't get much simpler than that. 
And I think what happened was this church at Ephesus became so concerned with keeping the doctrine and, and rooting out falseness and, and watching these false teachers, which they should be, which they should be. They forgot to love other people, though, and invite them into the kingdom of God. And this happens slowly and steadily in the church. The next verse, uh, the next fill-in is, is this. The works that the church in Ephesus did at first was evangelism. It was evangelism. One of our core values here, one of our top five core values is that we share the good news of Jesus with people in our lives. That's just who we are. That's just what we do. And so I want to encourage you that like this is what happened to the church of Ephesus when God's like, look, look, I'm going to remove your lampstand as a church. You're going to dwindle and die unless you do what you did at first and you go back to evangelism. And, and, and you know, I, I hate to say this, I've seen churches close. I, I, as the person who helps oversee the doctrine, I'm also the assistant district superintendent of these churches, and I've seen churches close. And the number one thing that we could all put our fingers on is not that they didn't have the money to remain open, not that they didn't have the people to remain open, but that they just stopped inviting people to know Jesus that they just became kind of this group of people who were comfortable with each other, and they stopped that invitation. And they were like, well, why do we even exist anymore? Well, I don't know. And then they, and honestly, it's good that they close. Because if they're not going to do that, if they're not going to be an outpost for the gospel, if they're not going to be an outpost for helping people to know Jesus, then turn the property over to people who will be. And that's what we've seen happen. I know some of that sounds like, you know, a little shrewd, but that's the reality, is that we're not called to be a country club of people who just, you know, love each other and have good friends and have great dessert auctions, which, by the way, I am for in favor of. I'm just, it's just more of a commercial than anything else. We're not called to be that. We're called to be outposts of the gospel. And this is what Ephesus forgot, is that they were called to be the outposts. And so he says, remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Remember, church, where you have fallen. This would be a great time, by the way, to take an evangelism temperature in your own life. On a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the most, uh, 1 being the least, how much do I want to see other people around me come to know Jesus? Maybe that's just dwindled for you in recent years. And you're here, and it's like, that's just been a dwindling thing. I haven't cared as much about that. I, I, I want your prayer today, um, I, I want to encourage you that your prayer today is, God, light a fire, uh, light a passion within my soul to see other people come to know you. Light a fire in me, God. Who was the, who was the last person you shared the gospel with? Who was the last person you shared your story with? Who is the last person you prayed for that they might receive Jesus? Who is the last person in your life that you, you were just on your knees for saying, God, I, this person needs to come in. If this person came to know you, everything would change. That's what this means. Repent and do the things you used to do. Take an evangelism temperature in your life. Where am I? If your love has grown, grown cold, which it can do, because sometimes we care so much about truth, and it doesn't mean we don't love Jesus. 
but it puts our focus, it, it shifts our focus onto truth rather than loving people. Maybe it's time to pray, Lord, grow me in this area. I want to be the kind of person that reaches out to others. I always tell people evangelism is like a muscle, and if you don't use it, you lose it. It's true. You kind of forget how to have these conversations. So I want to encourage you to begin using that muscle again. Practice on your spouse if you, I mean, they're, if they're already a Christian, practice on them. And like, I'm going to have this conversation with somebody. I need to practice on them. You know what I mean? But trust that Jesus is in it and he loves it when people come to know him. Go into all the world and share the gospel. This is what it means to get back to the Great Commission. And even for us as a church, we have to do regular evaluations. Like, are we about the Great Commission? Uh, are we just having this event or is it so that people will come to know Jesus? And all of our events are so that people will come to know Jesus because we're called to love God and others. The, the last part of this text, Revelation 2, 6-7, yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, I'm going to talk about them in another sermon, so come back for them because he brings, that, he brings this group up again. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Look, Jesus is like, I want you to be victorious, and I want you to eat from the tree of life. Now, the tree of life shows up on the first pages and the last pages of the Bible. In the last pages of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, it's all about this new world that God births and makes and, and recreates. And the, and the first pages of the Bible is all about Eden. And then humans lost their access to the tree of life, life because of their sin. And so what he says is, looks in church, I want you to be victorious so that you can be in the new creation, eating from my life, taking on my life. I want you to be in this new creation so that you can eat from this tree of life because I have so much to give to you. I want you to be there with me. Be victorious. Maybe you're here today. I want to invite the band as they come forward too because we're going to wrap this up here. Maybe you're here today and what I'm talking about, you've experienced. You've lost your first love. It doesn't mean you don't love Jesus. You do. You love Jesus. But your love for others has grown cold. This world of, of falseness and weird doctrines and strange thoughts, you're like, I just want to retreat into my own little Christian sanctuary world where I only see other Christians and only talk to other Christians. And I, I only, I don't want to deal with all that junk. Maybe your love for God has grown cold and that you don't share him with others. I want to encourage you that the book of Revelation, chapter 2, says if that's you, if that's your church, then repent. Repent. And do the things you did at first. Repent simply means turn around. I'm sorry, God. <laughs> that's me. Maybe you're here and I'm speaking to you and you know it. This next song is for you to repent and do the things you did at first. God, light a fire within my soul to reach people for Jesus. And maybe you're here and you've heard about Jesus, but you don't necessarily follow Jesus just yet. Maybe you've never encountered a God that cares more about loving you than he does about doctrine and all these other things, although doctrine matters. It's important. 
Maybe you've never experienced a God who loves you so much that he would lay down his life for you. Maybe you've never experienced a God who wants to remove the bad things you've done, the sin that you've done as far as from the east is to the west and give you new life. Maybe you've never experienced this Jesus who says, come and learn from me. Give me your burdens. I'll take them. And then you take my yoke. It's easy and light. And I'll walk with you through life. Maybe you've never experienced that. I want to invite you into relationship with Jesus today. Maybe that's you. So there's two responses here. One, to repent. My love has grown cold. And the other is to say, Jesus, I need to start following you. I recognize that you died for me, a sinner. I accept your free gift of salvation. Please forgive me of my sins and make me new again. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I just thank you for all that you do in the midst of your scripture, all that the work that you've done in the midst of your life. God, I know that you're calling this church and every person here to be faithful witnesses of everything you've done. God, there's some here today who need to repent, who need to just confess to you, God, my love has grown cold and I've stopped sharing the gospel. God, create in me this passion and this drive to help see other people, not as, not as people who I'm working against, but people as I am inviting to relationship with you. Break my heart for the things that break yours. Break my heart for people who are spiritually lost. Break my heart for people who don't know you, God. God, light that fire in me. And there's some here today who simply need to say, yes, Jesus, I want to begin to follow you with my whole life. Thank you for everything you've done for me. And I pray that you would forgive me of my sin and that you would take my burdens onto you and help me to walk with you. God, would you make me? Thank you for listening to the River's Edge Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and that God has touched your heart through today's message. Please leave us a review and share with your friends. For more information about the ministries of RAC, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. See the links in the description.